Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. So I I know you've got a lot going on. But remember, I'm here for you. So bother me when no one's listening because I will. Bother me when it feels like it won't get better because it can. Bother me because you're never a bother. Whether it's a low point or a crisis, get help for yourself or a friend. Learn more at neverabother.org or call or text 988, available 24-7. This podcast is about your future. What if the next years of your life can be the best years of your life? When full-time work becomes optional, you'll have the time to do all the things you've always wanted to do. If only you had the time. And soon you will. But to make the most of it, you'll need to be well-prepared. And that goes well beyond your financial planning. Each week, your host, Joe Casey, is inviting you into conversations with his guests to bring you insights inspiration and practical ideas to design your new life a life you'll build around what matters most to you and on your own terms let's get started welcome back to the retirement wisdom podcast i'm your host joe casey and this is a best of episode short snippets of the best conversations i've had in the last three months on the podcast and i know you're busy i know you can't listen to every episode but these are ones if you did miss it you want to make sure you don't. You'll find links to the full conversations of the podcast in the show notes. And let's get started with the first conversation. I had the pleasure of speaking with Steve Lopez, columnist of the LA Times. And he's someone I followed for many years, going back to his Philadelphia Inquirer days back in the 80s. He's a four-time nominee for the Pulitzer Prize. And he wrote a book this, that came out this past fall titled Independence Day. It traces his journey from one July 4th to the next of figuring out what he was going to do. Was he going to retire, work longer? And he interviewed a number of interesting people from all walks of life to get their perspectives on their decision. It's one I think you'll want to hear if you're contemplating whether to stay or whether to go. There are so many books about how do you know when to financially it's time to retire. And I thought I wanted to do more of the spiritual side of retirement, the identity part, the purpose, the reinvention part. However, it's worth noting that a lot of people that I encountered who are not happy in retirement uh, fell into financial difficulty. And one man in particular who had his whole life planned out, he's a birder and he and his wife love the outdoors and they were going to travel the world. And he lost in the crash a good chunk of his uh, nest egg, and he lost. He also uh, was diagnosed with cancer. And so all of a sudden, somebody who had it all mapped out realized he didn't have enough money. So it kind of goes without saying, but as we're living longer, and given the volatility of the markets, you got to have a sound financial plan. You can act on whatever your next, whatever chapter two is going to be, But think these things through. That's what I've learned is that 
think through how your relationship with your spouse is going to change. Think about that whole notion of how you will matter in the world, how you can still maybe make a difference, how you can stay curious and how you can continue to grow. Those are all things that I think people need to think through. Another thing that comes to mind that was sound advice, I believe, came from a rabbi who, I've got a chapter on Rabbi Naomi Levy, who said to me, don't underestimate the value of structure. And when you work for 50 years, and it involves getting up and showing up on time and doing what you're asked to do, that's structure. And we kind of thrive on structure. We've got schedules, we've got routines, and you need to really think think through in retirement. Can you survive without structure? Can you prosper spiritually, mentally without waking up without necessarily a plan or anywhere to go? And if you don't think you're one of those people, then you might have to map out some kind of structure in your life, whether it's okay, get up, take a one-hour walk with the dog, go and do some community service, pay your bills, wash the car, map out a nice vacation, and read a book, work on the guitar. I've been trying to play the guitar for an hour a day. And this rabbi had another good piece of advice. If you're fantasizing about all these things you're going to do in retirement, it would be nice if you could clear some space for them in advance of retirement to make sure that you really, really want to learn how to knit or you really, really want to learn how to fly a plane. Because if you're waiting, 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 and here you are, your first week of retirement, you think, oh my God, I'm terrified flying a plane. That's not going to work. So give whatever it is you want to do a bit of a try in advance if you get the chance. And yeah, I just learned so much from all of these people. I'm, I think I'll have a better next phase <laughs> simply because I went to school on all of these people who have been through it or have studied it, and I feel better prepared for the next phase of my life. The end of the year and the beginning of a new one is a natural time to step back, take stock, and reflect on where you're headed. My conversation with Dr. Jordan Grummet, though, adds a little bit of extra rationale for why that's an important thing to do and to take seriously. Step back and take stock. It carried me through high school and college and medical school, all the trials and tribulations because this identity was so tightly wound around who I was, there was never any doubt. There was a series of things that happened in residency as well as practicing in which I found that this profession that I idolized wasn't exactly what I thought it was. I didn't feel like I was helping people nearly as much as I had hoped. There was a lot of administration, a lot of paperwork. I found that my patients weren't always necessarily happy with us care providers. There was a lot of anger and suspicion. And so I realized suddenly that this was not everything that I had chalked it up to be. I was in my early 40s and this only identity I had ever known no longer fit. I thought I could solve my problems by solving the financial problem. I just said to myself, well, if I can make enough money, I can retire and then everything will be great. I get Jim Daly's book. I read that, in fact, I could retire right now. I have enough money. And then all of a sudden I realized, but what was I retiring to? I was leaving the only identity I had ever known. I was leaving this wisp of a connection to my father who had died when I was just seven years old. And I was going to embark on a life in which I had no direction or no idea, even what I would be doing the next day. 
So I made the classic mistake of thinking about things like purpose, identity, connections only once I got to financial independence. What I really love to argue in my book is that we should be doing this before we figure out our finances. I didn't do that. And because of it, I really fell into a deep depression where I didn't know who I was. I didn't know what I wanted and I didn't know how to move forward. Thankfully, I had an inkling of identity. I had realized that for years while I was practicing in medicine, I was squirreling away these hours to blog or to write or to public speak, something that I really loved and enjoyed. But I always told myself, well, you can't make a living at that. So it's a hobby. Once I was financially free from the burdens of worrying about my nine to five, I started to pursue these other things that had always been important to me, but I never felt like I had the time for. And eventually I started identifying as a communicator, a writer, a podcaster, a blogger, a public speaker. And strangely enough, I found that this identity fit me so much better than that of being a doctor. I had gone to medical school and residency and had almost no doctor friends. I hated hanging out in the doctor's lounge. And when my wife and I would go to parties, I'd be so embarrassed to tell people what I did for a living, which is kind of crazy, right? Because being a doctor is a pretty proud profession. What I finally realized is that identity I was wearing on my outside like a cloak wasn't fitting that identity on the inside of being a communicator. And that disconnect felt really bad. So now in my kind of what I call my second life, after I started moving away from medicine, I started identifying as a communicator and I would go to like personal finance conferences and I'd meet bloggers and writers and podcasters. And I would feel an immediate connection that I hadn't felt in people I'd known for decades within the medical world. And so I knew this identity fit better. And I've really spent the rest of my time since that moment in my early 40s where I realized that I didn't have to be only a doctor for the rest of my life. I've spent the rest of my time really building up that identity and being purposeful about building myself as a communicator. And it's led to these amazing connections where I now have these new friends that I've had over the last five, 10 years. Let's face it, most of us hate the word retirement. Even me, whose podcast has the word retirement in its title. But I came across Dr. Francine Toder's work, and she has a phrase that I think captures this phase of life much better. The vintage years. Well, this is the richest stage in life. For one thing, I am a psychologist, so I look at the world through psychologists' eyes. When you get to this stage of life, your mental health is probably better than it's ever been. And partly, and this may surprise some people, it's because the drop-off in certain hormones, estrogen and testosterone and some other ones that pull for other kinds of activities. And when those are gone, there is more room for taking up something new. And so and besides that, at this point, we have wisdom. And wisdom means, and I'll give you an example, kids have little bookcases full of half a dozen books. And by the time you're out of school, you've got a big bookcase. And by the time you're 60, you've got a huge bookcase. Well, it's the same way in your brain. You have a huge amount of storage in your brain. and that between excellent problem-solving skills that young people don't even have, those two things together make this the richest stage in life. And vintage sort of is relevant to that. So for your book, you interviewed late-blooming musicians, visual artists, writers, dancers, and people involved in theater. What's one story you can share that gives a sense of their life in this phase? Well, I pulled out one that I love. 
because it's about someone, it's in the ebook. It wasn't, it didn't make it into the hardcover book, but it is in the ebook. And it, and it's called Rochelle, the Metal Sculptor. And I'll just read a paragraph from that because I think it really describes it well. Try to imagine a 78-year-old woman, barely over five feet tall, wielding an acetylene torch to create art with found metal. Perhaps parts of wrecked cars getting ready to be salvaged or bed springs repurposed, reshaped and reimagined. That would be Rochelle, a self-taught sculptor who has been at her trade since she was 58. Now, she had no talent, according to her, at all. But when she got to be in her mid-40s and 50s, she was an office manager and got very close to the owner of the business. And when he was dying, he said to her, I'll read those words to you, Rochelle, you've always talked about being an artist. Don't die wondering. I'm leaving with a lot of unfulfilled dreams, and I don't want that to happen to you. And he said to her, she said she remembered his words, which were, quote, it's never too soon and it's never too late. Well, she thought when she was a child, she wanted to do some artistic work, but her family discouraged her. They didn't think it was practical. She came from a working class family in Western Pennsylvania. and. She forgot all about her art for years. And then she married a professional athlete and they traveled a lot. So it was focused on his life, not hers. And then when she, when he retired, that's when she started noticing that she was looking around in junkyards for parts and didn't know why. Long story short, she's a famous metal sculptor. We call junk sculpture here. You're using junk parts. Uh, and she's She's courted all over the world for her very large pieces. In her front yard, she's got pieces that are like 12 feet tall that she's done. And picture this five-foot woman with an acetylene torch, and she's still at it. She's in her late 80s now. She's a neighbor of mine. That's how I met her. And she never thought she had any talent. So there you go. If you've been listening to this podcast, retirement's on your mind. But do you have clarity about what it's going to be like, what your life's going to be like, and what it could be like? Invest some time in our Designing Your Life coaching process. I have two new groups starting in the third week of January, limited to 10 people in each group, 90-minute sessions by Zoom. And if you register by the deadline of December 31st, you also have two one-on-one -on -one coaching sessions with me, one before the program begins and one after concludes. So you have a clear plan of your next steps going forward. You'll find the link to register and more information in the show notes. Designing your life, designing your new retirement starts in January. Hope to see you there. It's interesting sometimes to step back and think about our thinking. I had a great conversation with Dr. Wu Kyung An of Yale University, psychology professor, about how some of our thinking gets twisted and the different cognitive biases that get in their way and what we can do to sharpen our thinking to live better on a day-to-day -day basis. What gets in the way of estimating accurately and how can we do that better? Yeah. So the home renovation, I have a lot to say about that, but they basically knocked down a wall in our living room at the end of April. And that living room uh, has been messy and it got finally cleared up yesterday. 
So it took six months for them to knock down a wall. And in March, they measured all the windows and only about 90% of the windows have been replaced so far. We are still waiting for another 10% of the windows. And the sidings should be all replaced. We They have not even started it. So what's going on, right? And the, these contractors, they don't want to miss a deadline either. Their Our initial contract was it, they'll be all done by the end of July. And they meant, well, they don't want the delay either. They want to finish the project and move on to a new project and make more money. And they are really working well, but except that there's so many things that we could not anticipate beforehand. But when they're estimating how long it's going to take to complete a project, they also think that, okay, I got to do X, Y, and Z. We need to order the windows and it's going to arrive and then, and so on. But then there are so many unanticipated things that happen. So this is again, an example of the overconfidence caused by fluent processes in your head. So this is particularly hard because when it comes to BTS, you can actually break your overconfidence by actually trying out. I mean, then you you can get the feedback right there that you can't do it. But when it comes to planning, you can't think about, you can't try it out because of the whole point of planning is planning without trying out. So therefore, uh, what I do to overcome the planning fallacy myself is I just basically like add 50% the time that I initially estimate. And I try not to negotiate with me on this. And sometimes 50% was not enough. My uh, favorite story was I was preparing for um, uh, revising a lecture on planning fallacy. And I thought it would be done <laughs> within four days. And I said, okay, that means a week. No, it took two weeks because there's so many studies that I read. And then I said, no, this one doesn't work. No, this is not interesting. So it took two weeks. So I think the best thing to do is just to assume that planning fallacy always happens 100% and then just double the estimate. Raise your hand if you don't want to be happier next year or if you don't want to retire happy. Of course, everyone does. But what can you do now to make that happen? Well, UCLA professor Cassie Holmes has great research-based tips and advice on how to do just that, looking at how your time, happiness, and choices are all interrelated. And what we look, this is an empirical question and one that we explored. What's the relationship between the amount of discretionary time people have and their happiness, their satisfaction in life? Across studies, we found a consistent pattern of results. And in one of the studies, what we did was we analyzed data from the American Time Use Survey, which captured for tens of thousands of working as well as non-working Americans, how they spent a regular day. And we calculated the amount of time that they spend on discretionary activities, spending time in ways that people want versus obligations. And what we found, the pattern of results was an upside down U-shape. So like an arc or a rainbow, suggesting that it goes down on both ends of the spectrum. So yes, with too little time, people are less happy because they have higher levels of stress. But what was interesting was that there is such thing as having too much available discretionary time. And digging into what drove that sort of downward slope 
with too much time. What it turns out is that we are driven to be productive. We're averse to being idle. So when we spend all the hours of our sort of regular days with nothing to show for how we spent those hours, it undermines our sense of purpose. And with that, we feel less satisfied. Now, notably, working for pay is not the only source of spending time in ways that allow folks to feel productive and worthwhile. For me, it was. So that is sort of like telling me in those daydreaming states, do not quit your job because for me, actually my work is a great source of fulfillment. But it is important to recognize that having the available discretionary hours in your day, what one needs to do is invest those hours in ways that allow them to feel productive to give a sense of purpose. So we actually found what are actually folks who had a whole lot of discretionary time when they spent them in ways that for them felt worthwhile, that it included things, engaging in an enriching hobby that allowed you to develop and grow, engaging in volunteer work that allowed you to feel like you were having an impact, also engaging in social connections, cultivating those important relationships you actually didn't see this dip in happiness with a lot of time. So what this is pointing to is that the solution to happiness or satisfaction is not actually being time rich. It's about making the time that you have rich. It's about investing the hours in your days in ways that feel fulfilling. And yes, you do need some available hours to spend in those ways or else, you know, You don't want to be in the time poor end of the spectrum, but you have to be wary and cautious when you do have a lot of available time to be intentional about investing in ways that feel worthwhile. So it's really all about that meaning and purpose required to be productive, not idle, as you said. And your book has a ton of very helpful exercises. What's one you'd recommend for someone listening who's in perhaps a life transition? They're time rich but they want to find that sweet spot, that Goldilocks, just right combo where they'll feel engaged, fulfilled, and happy. When you leave the world of full-time work and or if you move in retirement, you might find a loss of social connectivity, especially if a lot of your connectivity was tied to the workplace. And when you move, you may need to find your new tribe. And how do you do that? Well, our guest, Dr. Marissa Franco, has great research-based advice on how adults, and older adults in particular, can make new friends. Making friends is about having a certain type of setting or environment. It is one that Rebecca G. Adams, she's a sociologist, she describes it as having repeated unplanned interaction and shared vulnerability. So that's school, right? You see someone every day, you have recess, you have gym, you have lunch, right? For some people, that's work. For other people, not. Because sometimes people go to work and they're not quite vulnerable, which is why one study found that the more time we spend together at work, the less close we feel. And I think in general, as we move forward to adulthood, we just don't inhabit those same types of settings that really foster connection, right? So if we rely on this concept of making friends that we had when we were kids, we're just going to be like, it should just happen, right? And then we don't, we're not realizing we're not in that setting anymore. So it's not going to just happen for you. And in fact, this is a study on older adults that found that people that thought friendship happened based on luck were lonelier five years later. Whereas 
those that saw it as happening based on effort were less lonely five years later because they made that effort. I miss recess, I'm just realizing. Yeah, recess. right? That was <laughs> good. <laughs> we need work recess. <laughs> Absolutely. Good concept to bring back. So I want to ask about two separate things. How can initiating and vulnerability, which you mentioned, be helpful in cultivating friendships? Yeah. So initiating is really key because again, just waiting for people to come to you does not work. Friendship does not happen organically in adulthood. It looks like saying to someone, hey, it's great to meet you. I'd love to stay connected. Could I exchange contact information? Actually following up with them, right? And I think our biggest barrier to this is that we're so afraid of rejection. So I like to tell people about research on something called the liking gap which finds that when strangers interact, they underestimate how liked they are by the other person. And the more self-critical they are, the more they're like, I'm awkward, I'm weird, the more pronounced this liking gap is. So the, the even more likely they are to underestimate how liked they are. So the truth is people are a lot less likely to reject you than you might think they are. But because we have this belief, we're not even putting ourselves out there to find out. And how does vulnerability play into it? Yeah, yeah. So. In the book, I describe vulnerability as sharing something that's authentic to you that feels risky or feels exposing or feels like, I don't know, someone could like shame or reject you for. So initiating is certainly one of those things, right? That tends to feel very vulnerable for people. But in general, we find in the research, and this is something I'm going to kind of, a thread that I'm going to pull out is our brain's negativity bias. When we predict the impact of our behaviors, our predictions are inaccurate and they're often more cynical than the truth, right? So I talked about the liking gap as an example of that, but in the research on vulnerability, the example is research on, on something called the beautiful mess effect, that when I picture someone doing something vulnerable, like talking about the flaws in their own body or confessing to someone that they love them, right? And I evaluate it, I see it more positively. But when I think of myself doing that same thing, I view it more negatively and I think people will view it more negatively. And so there, we have this bias when we think about ourselves, we're like, people aren't going to like this. They're going to think I'm weird. But when other people do the exact same thing, we're like, oh my gosh, that's so great. You know, they're so authentic. They're so genuine. They really trust. So sometimes I think it requires us because for me, like the, something that's vulnerable that I struggle with is asking for support from other people. So what I've started to do is literally ask myself, what if this person asked for support from me? How would I read this? And then I try to use my answer to that question to evaluate the impact of how it'll come off if I ask for support. Because I know when the self is involved, our self-defensive mechanisms come into play, our defense mechanisms come into play, and we don't actually perceive the world accurately. So it takes us to take a step back and think of, what if someone initiated with me? Like, wouldn't I feel great that someone was like really interested in getting to know me or someone got vulnerable with me and I'd be like, oh my gosh, I feel so close to them. I'm so honored that they were willing to share. And so we can sort of try to use that same process when we evaluate ourselves to get around the defensive hijacking that our brain has when our brain is like basically in survival mode, like protect the self at all costs, not realizing that sometimes that can really harm our relationships. Thanks for listening to this short set of snippets from the best of our most recent podcast conversations. You can find all of the links to the full conversations in the show notes, and you can find all of our episodes at my website, retirementwisdom.com. Thanks for listening to the Retirement Wisdom Podcast. Just one more thing before you take off. 
Is it time to design your new life after you graduate from the world of full-time work? Go to retirementwisdom.com and schedule a call today with Joe Casey. Working with an experienced coach like Joe can help you explore new possibilities and gain clarity on your future. Thank you for listening to the Retirement Wisdom Podcast. See you next week. Save big on brunch for mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson natural boneless chicken breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. So I, I know you've got a lot going on. But remember, I'm here for you. So bother me when no one's listening, because I will. Bother me when it feels like it won't get better, because it can. Bother me because you're never a bother. Whether it's a low point or a crisis, get help for yourself or a friend. Learn more at neverabother.org or call or text 988, available 24-7.